Lincoln Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Here's Armstrong and Getty. Supply chain interruptions. McDonald's is out of milkshakes. What? Not in the United States, thank God. But oh. the, the special relationship. I haven't had a McDonald's know. milkshake in many, many years. And I'm not above that sort of thing, as you all know. Certainly not. Uh, if I was going to have a milkshake, it would not be the right. Scottish clowns. Right, exactly. If I'm going to go ahead and be milkshake guy, um, it's not going to be from freaking McDonald's. Of course, you'd think mis- that about hamburgers, too, and I eat their burgers. The mysterious non-melting milkshake. Well, non-decaying hamburgers are every bit as frightening. Anyway, uh, so uh, economic story of note, the great resignation is here. This, oddly enough, this was predicted by a Texas A&M uh, professor, instructor, um, a mass voluntary exodus from the workforce. But uh, according to the U.S. Department of Labor, during the months of April, May, and June of this year, a total of 11.5 million workers quit their jobs. Recent studies indicate it's likely not over. A survey of tens of thousands of workers uh, conducted by Microsoft found that 41% are considering quitting. If it's Generation Z, it's 54%, which I remember we were talking about. Well, when you're young, you have crappy jobs, and you're constantly thinking you'd like to quit. It's just universally true. But they found that 48% of employees are actively searching for new opportunities, a disparate survey reported 38% of those surveyed plan to make a change in the next six months. And uh, Inc., in their article on these uh, these surveys and numbers, says the cost of any turnover is expensive. For any organization to lose even a third of its workforce would be downright devastating. And the impact on small and medium enterprises, where a department of one human is not unusual, will be especially severe. Um, not shocking. Uh, survey conducted by LinkedIn. Three quarters of those surveyed indicated that the time spent at home, and we've talked about this before, either during the shutdown, working remotely, got laid off, whatever, caused them to rethink their current work situation, their current life choices. Yeah. Um, it's another, it, it hurried along things that were already happening. Uh, we've been saying that for a year and a half now. It hurried along trends that were already occurring. There was already a trend toward, you know, how many people can work from home as opposed to come into the office, how much, that sort of thing. Um, and also the relationship between uh, companies and their employees, which has been changing over the years. My dad worked for like three different companies his whole life. You know, back in the day, a lot of people worked for one company their whole life. Uh, and you fe- felt somewhat loyal to that company. And uh, the idea of leaving it just wasn't really on the table. Now it's a, uh, it's a, you know, every day it's up in the air as to whether or not you come or go or whether or not they fire you. And it's just a race between the two of you. <laughs> right, right. Will they fire me before my boss quits? Uh, you know, it occurs to me, my dad, you know, if you don't count the United States Air Force, worked for two companies his adult life. Yeah. Which is amazing. Uh, anyway, I, I think even bigger than accelerating trends, I just think so much of life and and it's more true of some than others. So much of life is inertia. You're on a track, so you stay on that track. It 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 costs time, money, energy, fear, etc. to to jump off your track and onto another one. And I I think a lot of people just don't, and they were forced to reappraise everything because of COVID. Mm. Uh, let's see. Um, well, yeah, in fact, that's the three quarters of those who indicated that they were moving on said that they had re rethought their work 
situation during COVID. A great many, over half in several surveys, cite stress and burnout in their current position as a reason for looking elsewhere. Others point to uh, dissatisfaction, even fear caused by knee-jerk cost-cutting actions by their current employers in response to the COVID-19-related business slowdowns. It's It sucks working here now, in other words. And then the usual list of gripes. But then Inc., uh, if you're not familiar with it, it's INC. It's a business publication. Uh, they make the point that a lot of companies made the assumption that since there was a downturn, people would be desperate to keep their jobs so they could cut benefits, they could treat their uh, people like crap, they could fire a third of the workforce and make everybody work twice as hard. And it turned out to be the opposite because so much of life came to a halt. People had that the conveyor belt had stopped mm-hmm. feeling and they were more able to objectively look at their circumstance because everything else had stopped. Who saw that coming? Yeah keep my personal details out of this but i think a lot of that happened with um all kinds of different things including marriages from everything i read people who thought okay i'm not i'm I'm stuck on this track and some people decided that this is not the track i want to be on so here's my chance to get off all across the country you talk about uh, humans being more complicated and tough to predict. Because the Chinese unleashed a virus on the world that's going to kill millions of people, um, everybody kind of stepped outside themselves and, and reappraised everything. Meanwhile, the Wuhan lab fever continues to kill people all over the world, 99.9% uh, unvaccinated people. But uh, the state of California is contemplating a an indoor mask mandate for restaurants and all sorts of other venues. Quinnipiac has been uh, polling on all sorts of idea, uh, you know, uh, questions of policy and that sort of thing over COVID, and they've just got a brand new poll out that I found really interesting. Florida, you may have heard, dealing with a COVID surge, etc. Governor Ron DeSantis controversially banned mask mandates in schools. I don't think masks probably do kids much uh, good at all. But a majority of people in Florida say they support requiring students, teachers, and staff to wear masks in school. It's 60 to 36 in favor of it. But listen to this. Democrats are 98 to 1. Independents, 63-32. Republicans say no by 72-24. to To me, you know, we talk a lot about um, Thomas Sowell's book, A Conflict of Visions. People on the left and the right just have a different vision of the world. And, that, and we come to things from such different perspectives that we often don't even understand the other side. But the idea that you'd have a statewide rule makes no sense to me. Because I know how different COVID can be or attitudes of, of of people about COVID can be within 20 miles of each other. Because I've got it right here in my own backyard. I, I live in a place where everybody's wearing a mask and everybody's worried about COVID for some reason. I know that 30 miles that way, people aren't worried about it at all. Let them handle their schools the way they want. Why would a governor make a rule... I don't like the idea of forcing all the schools to wear masks or not allowing the schools to wear masks. Either one. Let the schools decide and the parents decide. Yeah, I guess Ron DeSantis figures it's bad for the kids and it ought to be the parents, uh, individual parents' uh, prerogative yeah, to keep, figure that out. Keeping in mind always, and I think people forget this, the, the, the governor or whoever can say we're not making it a mandate to wear a mask. You can still wear a mask. Nobody can stop you from wearing a mask. 
Also, keeping in mind, many school administrators are morons. So if you want to wear so a mask, ideological, they might as well be. Go ahead and wear a mask. Interestingly enough, uh, the fabulous Kevin, uh, who keeps us up to date on COVID research and mask science and all sorts of stuff, uh, points out that the United Kingdom's Department of Education is out with updated COVID-19 guidance for schools. Um, <clears throat> of the uh, of great note is that no masks are required for anyone in school. The UK, like the majority of countries in Europe, does not mandate masks for children in school. Uh, he writes, damn you, Ron DeSantis. Uh, face coverings are no longer advised for pupils, staff, and visitors, either in classrooms or in communal areas. That's a quote from the advisory. Classroom pods or bubbles, no longer recommended. Contract tracing and isolation, contract contact tracing, rather, is not required. And individuals are not required to self-isolate if they live in the same household as someone with COVID-19 or are a close contact of someone with COVID-19 if they are a student. Meanwhile, in Oregon, they have an outdoor mask mandate. Yeah, that is unbelievable. That's crazy. There are key control methods in uh, Great Britain, for what it's worth. This doesn't mean it's right, but it's interesting to compare and contrast. Ensure good hygiene for everyone. Maintain appropriate cleaning regimes. Keep occupied spaces well ventilated. And follow public health advice on testing, self-isolation, managing confirmed cases of COVID-19. Basically, normal school. So we got this from the Facebook page, which I never look at, but Hanson does. Uh, I'm not sure what's up with Jack and Joe's mask and vaccine stances. They're against them, then they're for them, then they're against. It feels like they're either being led by some overlords or they're drifting where their ratings and polls put them. For pretty strong. Wow. Possibility number one, idiotic. It's never happened in our entire career. Uh, second, please. <laughs> idiotic. For, for pretty strong libertarians, as long as I've listened, I'm shocked that they're cool with forcing people to get vaccinated. I mean, they may not come out and say it, but that if you need to be employed or travel or go to any retail building, it kind of seems like it's being forced. No, I'm not for forced vaccinations at all. I, I, I got it. I think you should, but I don't particularly well, How about care. I like it at school, though? They're hmm. forcing the teachers or you get fired. Well, I think, you know, if you're vaccinated, uh, you're going to be fine anyway. Kids can't get vaccinated. Yeah. Oh, that's true. Yeah. So... Well, I don't know. It's a tough one. Kind of boils down to what, how serious is the Delta variant for kids, and that's still unclear to me. You know, surprisingly, as a guy with a, a kid in a in a school, like he's at school today in a classroom with a bunch, I don't, I haven't thought about whether the teacher's vaccinated nor cared. I just, I'm not worried about it. No, no. Well, the danger to kids is still pretty small, yeah. or so it would seem. Yeah. Tough to get by all the clickbait and, and the fake news and the uh, advocacy journalism and the rest of it, though, to figure out what's actually going on. Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. People with these names should watch their step. A California-based firm compiles a list of people who are most accident-prone uh, by name. That sounds idiotic. I told you it was stupid. Uh, yeah, but I thought... Uh, we went into it as stupid. I thought you meant... I mean, like, regular stupid, not like uber stupid. Well, you know, uh, scientists, uh, you know, you take a look at everything. You never know when you're going to hit upon something. This one's almost certainly stupid, but Mm -hmm. there's some people believe that your name can have an impact on your life, affect your personality, etc. I don't know if I believe that at all. If you had a particularly 
weird name. It might have some impact on your personality growing up, but man, even then, I don't think it'd be a lot. <laughs> that reminds me, um, you know, if your last name's Pig and your kids name you Ima, that sort of thing. Sure. Oh, yeah. That I could see. Your, your parents are awful. That's your or problem. Or if your name is Barry Satoro, but that's not exotic enough, so you start calling yourself Barack Obama. Um, I was doing, I'm getting way off track here. Um, or Sandy Cortez now calls herself uh, Alexandra Ocasio Cortez. Um, in your note, uh, I don't know why I thought of this, but I was doing the parent teacher conference for my son, my fifth grader, yesterday. And she is talking about, or there's one particular thing that makes uh, my son uncomfortable. And then she's talking about some kids, this makes them uncomfortable. And she's talking about what her made her uncomfortable. Man, if there is one gift I could give to my kids, and I know every parent feels exactly the same way, and every parent probably has a billion dollars. It'd be a billion dollars. Now you don't have anything to worry about. A toy fire truck. Uh, it's just the ability to, to like look at it through your grown-up eyes. Mm. Uh, so many things that were torturous as a child. Mm. As a grown-up, you think, why Why did little me sit there suffering because you thought your feet were too big or your hair was the wrong color or you had a funny name or, you know, whatever your thing is. Right. You couldn't read as well out loud or your math or just or your sports or whatever your thing was that was torturous to you as a kid. If you could just give kids the adult perspective on that. Oh. Or you just don't give a crap. Yeah. Yeah, I know it. I know it. It's funny. And, and, and it's just, it's terrible that kids have to suffer through it. I, you know, obviously that's part of life. Somehow it's the way it's supposed to be, I suppose. But Well, and it's a, it's a learning curve for a lot of us learning to pay heed to and, and, and like respect their expressing their issue to you and not reject it. I'd say, don't worry about that. Yeah, no, that they are worried. Yeah, that doesn't work, and I know that from my own personal experience. Right? Yeah, absolutely. So you have to recognize it, and then find a way to very, very, very gently convey the notion that uh, this too shall pass. You'll get past this. It won't even leave a mark, um, unless it does. And and trust me when I say, even after your kids are adults, sometimes you have to have that conversation. I also go with the. Uh you know, since you are, you know, what it feels like when somebody mentions your whatever your situation is, mm-hmm. it's a good reason not to do it to other people. There you go. Teaches you compassion. Um, anywho, I don't know how I got off on that. I guess the names thing, being made fun of for your name. But anyway. That's a little insight there. I didn't expect it when this stupid, stupid thing began. <laughs> this is yeah, stupid. Give me, a, give me a for instance. I wish I had the name. <laughs> the name part is stupid. I actually like would like more from the study, this stuff. Um. Personal injury claims, and they went through all of them in the state of California, which is a big state. Mm-hmm. Women suffer injuries 37% more when falling over. Men are top tw- heavy. It's the breasts. <laughs> Fall just over? makes sense. Ah. <laughs> that doesn't happen to me that often. Men are 23% more likely to have mishaps at home than women. They don't have any reason for this. They just compile it. I'd like to. I'd probably like to see that whole thing. I bet it's interesting. But then they. I bet a lot of the mishaps are uh, uh, falls from ladders and stuff like that when you're fixing stuff. If your name is Kyle, you're probably going to fall off a ladder, or slam your foot in a door. I'll be damned. Or trip over something. Trying to think if I know your head on a cupboard, Kyle. I didn't have the time to to independently (laughs) do a comparison, but I would love to see those names overlapped with. Most popular names of the age ranges kind of featured here, because it seems like I don't know. The more popular names are just going to show up more often. 
Is it yeah, right? Is it prone. a disproportionate number excellent, of Kyles? Excellent point. In a that, percentage of Kyles, and then and names are not doled out evenly. Correct. No, it is not a random sample. There are going to be more Brandons stubbing their toe in ten years as adults than exactly. Ulysses. Than you than autos. Yeah, right. <laughs> not because right. of their name. There are more Caitlins yeah. falling over as we speak. Exactly. Oh, Madisons the, can't bits. stay upright. Oh, are you kidding? Um, <laughs> you can't swing a dead uh, cat without hitting a prone Madison. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I was talking about, I think I was talking about Pinehurst, North Carolina the other day with a, a buddy of mine. Um, and I said, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting a championship golf course. He said, Joe, Joe, you need to let your dead cat go. <laughs> stop, Why are you hanging on to Stop this? swinging it. <laughs> Cracked me up. <laughs> so Sean took a stupid premise, and by pointing out the flaw in the stupid premise, made it even stupider. So yes. I'm not even going to talk about it anymore, because it's just moronic. Oh, I ruined it. It's just moronic. <laughs> well, it's fun to talk about uh, some of the... Uh, I'll hit you with the women. Uh, Haley. But I think that again, gets to the... Yeah. To Sean's point. I don't think I know a. Yeah, I do know a Haley. Yeah, I do. Sorry, I'll retract that. More Haley's are falling over than Ruth's. <laughs> Names, Jack. They come in and out, don't they? Yeah. You ever notice that? Armstrong and Getty. From the Abraham Lincoln Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. And now, here's Armstrong and Getty. New York Times did a big piece describing how not only are the prices of various healthcare procedures wildly different, from facility to facility, from area to area, region to region, but they're wildly different at the same facility, depending on what sort of insurance plan you have or if you don't have insurance. And Craig Gottwals, Craig, the healthcare guru, joins us. He's an attorney at law, benefit consultant, uh, and, uh, and, and knows more about this stuff than about anybody. Hey, Craig, how are you? I'm well. How are you, gentlemen? Uh, good. Uh, so Joe's going to ask all the questions. I'm taking a uh, home COVID test while Joe asks the questions. <laughs> At one-fifth of the cost of what it would take cost you to do that COVID test uh, with a nurse. Exactly. So I'm about to stick the swab in my nose and then to stick it into the liquid, and I'll know in 15 minutes if I have COVID or not. So while you're talking, this is about, exciting. While you're talking about, man, I wish, I wish, I wish y'all still had the live cast because I would really like to watch that. That'd be good times. I'm going to jam this thing way up in my nose too. I want to get this right. <laughs> yeah, I'll, you can get it. I'll listen when, to your when interview. It, when with... it pushes back, keep going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's when you know you're right at the sweet spot. <laughs> Yeah. All right, so Craig, God. you as the most organized human being I've ever met have sent us a, uh, a, a kind of a prep sheet, a fact sheet, why costs are all over the map. They are. They're just nuts. Where do you start? Well, yeah, the the, uh, the New York Times did a pretty good job of cataloging some, some nice uh, examples of it. And, you know, this kudos to the Armstrong and Getty show. Um, we talked about this two years ago, gents. I mean, we, when, when Trump first floated the idea of these regulations, uh, we were on the air saying, this is a fantastic idea. It's not a silver bullet, uh, but it's a great first step. We need to have transparency in these prices to give the market any chance at all to fight back against the, the bureaucratic oligopoly we have now. 
Um, so a couple foundational facts, because you, you cannot look at this topic without reiterating some of the basics with health care. Right now, in blue states, taxpayers pay 70% of all health care costs. In red states, it's 65%. You're looking at roughly two-thirds of all health care costs nationwide are funded by taxpayers. Healthcare costs us 18% of our GDP, which is $4 trillion a year. That works out to $11,600 per person, not per family, okay? U.S. debt, we, we always hear about U.S. debt being $28.5, 29000000000000 trillion. Fine, that's the low number. But when you add in the real U.S. debt, when you add in the unfunded liability of Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, so again, primarily insurance company functions, we owe $465,000 per citizen. Again, not per family, not per taxpayer, right? So we have a huge problem. The very single largest problem facing our country, um, as sad as what's going on in Afghanistan, is not that. It's not terrorism. It's this. It's the cost of health care. It's the cost of insurance, and it's our budget. Why is it so it's screwed up? Who, who, who are the major players? Uh, who are we looking at? Okay, so... <laughs> Skipping around here a bit, we've got we've got what I would call an oligopoly, which is we have four major providers of health insurance across the country. It's they're commonly referred to as BUCA, which stands for the Blues, United Healthcare, Cigna, and Aetna. Uh, the New York Times article throws in Humana, but they're rather small in the grand scheme of things on medical care. So you've got these giant insurance companies in bed with the federal government. They they, they work hand in hand to write Obamacare. You also have the pharmaceutical industry, and then last, but and, and probably least, frankly, is large hospital chains. The individual medical practitioners, small doctor groups and individual doctors are not the problem. It's the bureaucracy and the inefficient market that we've created working together that are the problem, okay? Skipping ahead to why has it boiled to a head so badly now? I mean, this has been a growing problem for 40 years, but Obamacare did one thing that was rather draconian and bad in 2009 obamacare put in a price control on insurance companies again no good deed goes unpunished this wasn't done with bad intentions but what obamacare did was it said hey insurance companies we don't want you price gouging so what we're going to say is that you're only allowed to mark up your prices 15 percent more than the claims you pay it's called a medical loss ratio so what that what that did was to say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna limit the profitability of insurance companies. And again, a lot of people on the surface thought that was a good idea. Well, in practice, a decade later, what we see is it's been a horrible practice. It's exacerbated the problem because now for insurance companies to increase profitability, they have to increase claims. So where the negotiation used to be between a large hospital chain and insurance company, the insurance company was always trying to keep claims as low as possible. Now, insurance companies have a reduced incentive to, to lower claim cost. So if, for example, if an MRI goes from 1000 to 4000 well, the insurance company gets to keep, as a profit margin, 15% of 4000 as opposed to 15% of 1000 And because there are so few players, the consumer really can't say, screw you, you suck, you're, you're overcharging, we're overpaying, I'm going with a, a company B. That's exactly right. It's become increasingly difficult because, like I said, We've got hospital chains that are gobbling up small hospitals. So we have a, a handful of very large hospital chains nationwide, four large insurance companies, and a federal government. And they all, as as we've talked about going back to the book This Town, they all trade executives over the years, and they're all in the same muck together. 
The the whole thing, um, by the way, I did my nasal swab and I'm waiting now my 15 minutes for the result of my COVID test. So, um, the whole thing with the medical care. So I've sp- I spent 24 hours in the emergency room two days ago. I've talked about that. Then at another medical facility. At no point in this process, at, at any point, has the idea of what this costs come up. Ever, I mean, no. no so that, that that's that's just the way the whole thing works. There's there's all these numbers moving around and prices moving around somewhere in a computer with somebody between the hospitals, insurance companies, whatever. But I haven't seen a single price at any point. It would, that's just where we are. And it's been that way for. No, and the, the, it's forever, basically, yeah. in our lives. Yeah. And the system is set up, Jack, so that you don't see the price. Because, again, the fundamental problem, coming back, repeating something we've talked about on this show before, the, the largest purchaser of health care is now the federal government. The largest federal government program purchasing health care is Medicare. In order to keep Medicare from completely tanking our budget, I mean, some would argue that uh, 465000 per citizen, our budget's already tanked. But, you know, let's 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 just play this game for a bit and say, what can we do to keep Medicare from, you know, the Bernie Sanders $30 trillion plan from taking over? Well, what Medicare does is they artificially suppress what they reimburse for health care. So Medicare, health care is inflating at 3 to six, three to 4% every single year, okay? But the, the federal government only increases what it reimburses for health care 1% every year. Well, that puts added pressure on the hospital chains to negotiate higher reimbursements with the insurance lobby. And now with the Obamacare mandates in place, the insurance lobby says, yeah, bigger claims means more profit for us. Okay. So these prices get spun out of control. And that's why you see things like paying 10 times the cost of an MRI. If you're in private insurance versus Medicare. Now on at that and says, see, Medicare is doing a better job at negotiating prices, but they're not negotiating at all. They're just saying, if you want to play with the federal government, which is, by the way, the dominant monopoly in healthcare now, this is what you'll take. And you'll you'll make up the difference on the backs of those 30 percent of people that are paying for their own health care. This is the problem. And this problem is not going to get better unless we have dramatic changes. This law was a good first step. But as if you've read the article, you know, the law has problems and we need we need more. You know. So presumably, then, if that 30% of us who are paying for our own health care with the uh, aid of our beloved uh, corporate fathers, um, if, if we went away, if it becomes all government health care, that enormous subsidy that keeps health care excellent to the goes extent away. that it is goes away. So we end up with away. crappy, crappy DMV style medicine. Right. So I look, I pulled this stat just a few moments ago and knowing that our, knowing that our conversation would end here. So you, you, you guys typically will ask me, um, why does a doctor take Medicare then? And the answer is because the, the federal government's the largest buyer of health care. And so without putting a huge dent in their business, they really have to do that. Plus the Hippocratic oath is do no harm and they feel a moral obligation to do so. But now it's, we're to the point where Roughly only 75% of doctors will accept a new Medicare patient, but it's only 55% of new doctors that'll accept a Medicaid patient. Medicaid is for the low income, of which one in three babies are born on Medicaid now. One out of three babies are born on Medicaid. That's a stunning statistic. And when when Medicaid was created in the late 60s, it was only designed to cover the lowest 2% of the population. Now one out of three babies are born on it. And here's the now 55% of doctors will accept Medicaid. So we're getting into a crisis, right, where we don't have enough doctors that'll take this low cost. Here's the stat that really blew my mind. 
percent of mental health experts in Medicaid will take a new patient, Jack. Wow. This this wow. is a problem, right? You you've talked about this on the air as well. This is this is the problem we're seeing for kids with mental health anymore. When one out of three kids are born into a system where only one out of three doctors will take a new patient, this is this is where we're seeing that this is the iceberg tip of the crisis. And meanwhile, the government policies related to COVID have caused a crisis in child mental health. Uh, so uh, Craig Gottwals, Craig, the healthcare guru, is on the line. Uh, before we uh, drive people to take up arms, um, what should we be advocating for? I know price transparency is a great first step. Uh, what else? Is there another yes. big one people yes. should be writing letters and shouting about? Well, before we leave price price transparency, I do want to say that this is, you know, there is a a, a slight ray of hope here, right? This was a Trump and the New York Times did a really good job of burying the fact that because they because the New York Times likes this new regulation and, and they did a great job of burying the fact that it was Trump's idea. It's a Trump idea that they go on and they do say on like page six in the article that the Biden administration supports. So. This law is good. As you know, most hospitals are simply ignoring the law because the maximum penalty is only $110,000 a year per hospital. These hospital chains make $5 billion a year. So having it be $100,000 a year is ridiculous, and that's why 80% of hospitals are ignoring this transparency rule. But they are going to try and increase the fine to $2 million next year. So it, 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 the first step is, is talk to your congressman, send a letter saying, we support transparency, increase the penalties, make the, make this data more readily available. So that's step one. Step two, for large employers, this is employers with, say, more than 300 employees, we've got to move to what's called a reference-based pricing system. Cut insurance companies out, self-fund your plan, and don't use a network at all. Just go direct. You insure your employees, and we will directly negotiate those reimbursements with the providers. There is a system to do that. Some employers are starting to. It is one way to break up this bureaucratic oligopoly. Wow. Okay, Craig Gottwald's the healthcare guru. Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Bill Maher's an interesting cat. He's a liberal and a progressive that uh, he and I agree on nothing in terms of just overall philosophy of uh, governing and human beings and safety net and that sort of stuff. But as uh, an old school liberal, he. Um, he, uh, he's in, in line with us a lot, but this is, well, we'll just play it for you. Here's how it goes. And finally, new rule, don't spin me when it comes to my health. Over the past year, the COVID pandemic has prompted the medical establishment, the media, and the government to take a scared straight approach to getting the public to comply with their recommendations. Well, I'm from a different school. Give it to me straight, Doc. Because in the long run, that always works better than you can't handle the truth. Now, I get it. Doctors tell people lies because they don't trust you to finish the antibiotics. And media? Well, I think we all know if it bleeds, it leads. Researchers at Dartmouth built a database recently monitoring the COVID coverage of the major news outlets across the world and found that while other countries mix the good news in with the bad, the U.S. national media reported almost 90% bad news. Even as things were getting better, the reporting remained negative. So how politi- how amazing is that? Mm. So that's unique to our U.S. media from the way they do it in uh, Europe. That's uh, I find that interesting. Why we could probably talk for the next two hours on why that is and what it means. Uh, we won't. 
Is Look, it because that's a we head scratcher? Are we just ahead of the world in clickonomics because it all was invented here and that Europe is headed that direction? I don't actually know. Are they smarter than us? I don't. I I know. I tend I don't to know. Doubt smaller that. countries, more cohesive, where you're more likely to know the news anchor and tell them, "Hey, we don't appreciate the propaganda." I don't know. But the idea that they would mix more of the good news with the bad news as opposed to just only bad news, right? It's troubling. Anyway, back to Bill. Even as things were getting better, the reporting remained negative. And politicians, they lie because it's their nature to cover their ass so they don't get blamed if things goes badly. And also to keep in practice. When all of our sources for medical information have an agenda to spin us, yeah, you wind up with a badly misinformed population, including on the left. Liberals often mock the Republican misinformation bubble. But what about liberals? You know, the high information by the science people? In a recent Gallup survey, Democrats did much worse than Republicans in getting the right answer to the fundamental question, what are the chances that someone who gets COVID will need to be hospitalized? The answer is between 1 and 5%. 41% of Democrats thought it was over 50%. Another 28% put the chances at 20 to 49. So almost 70% of Democrats are wildly off on this key question, and also have a greatly exaggerated view of the danger of COVID-2 and the mortality rate among children. All of which explains why today the states with the highest share of schools that are still closed are all blue states. So if the right-wing media bubble has to own things like climate change denial, shouldn't liberal media have to answer for how did your audience wind up believing such a bunch of crap about COVID? I, yeah, yeah, I would agree. Well, and, and because I'm a middle child and I seek to bring people together, I'll point out that what do you expect of people if that's all they hear? They, sure. tune, to, they tune in or, or, or click on what used to be a respected source of news, not suspecting that they've become a, just an utterly shameless uh, clickbait factory. Feeding them misinformation, you gotta, you can't hate people for that. Well, similar to if you only heard one story of the election was stolen, uh, narrative. Sure. Yeah. Uh, you, you wouldn't have heard any of the other stuff. Um, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what fixes this. I don't know how it gets better, but you, you can see it's a pretty big problem. Schools being closed is a big problem. And if it's because most people on the left think you're, <laughs> 10 to 50 times more likely to end up in the hospital or die from COVID than is true? That's right. a problem. And the perception is even less accurate when it comes to kids. We've gone over that. Let's let the little man with the big brain uh, finish his screed, then we'll have more comments. Here's what I'm saying. I don't want politics mixed in with my medical decisions. And now that everything is politics, that's all we do. If their side says COVID is nothing, our side has to say it's everything. Trump said it would go away like a miracle. And we said it was World War Z. If you lie to people, even for a very good cause, you lose their trust. I think a lot of people died because of Trump's incompetence. And I think a lot of people died because talking about obesity had become a third rail in America. A stunning statistic was reported. 78% of those hospitalized, ventilated, or dead from COVID have been overweight. It is the key piece of the puzzle 
by far the most pertinent factor, but you dare not speak its name. If the media and the doctors had made a point to keep saying, but there's something you can do, but we'll never know because they never did. Because the last thing you want to do is say something insensitive. We would literally rather die. Yeah, that's, uh, I don't know if it's the key, but it's certainly a key. Well, 70, what did he say, 78% yeah. of people who died yeah. were yeah. obese. Yeah. Being or, or old. S- significantly over, overweight. Being yeah. old and obese is a, a bad, bad place to be. But, but he's absolutely right. That's something nobody's ever going to say out loud. Yeah. Yeah. That's fat shaming. Yeah, we're, man, we're, this is an odd moment in America. Or maybe it's just we're more aware of it. Maybe most of America has been fairly delusional through our whole history. No, no, you just didn't no know it. No way. Can't be. You don't think? Can't be. Certainly where you, we're, certainly not where you had two different sides like this completely living in different worlds. Well, and as he makes the point, now that politics is everything, everything is about politics. It used to be. I mean, there, there'd be no motivation for the newspapers and networks of old to whip up disease fear or to tamp it down, for that matter, for political reasons. They would have thought that was a ludicrous thing to even suggest. But it's it's our reality now. What strange times. Armstrong and Getty.